Good morning, beloved. Uh, today's passage is going to be 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. That can be found on the Pew Bible, the Black Pew Bible, on page 987. I encourage you to open God's Word and have it before you. So hear your God's words to you, Restoration. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not to please the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all of these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This is the word of God. Well, I once heard a pastor tell the story of while he was speaking to some students regarding sexual purity, wherein he explained the experience of being so, fuel, so full of impure desires that it seemed impossible to not give in to them. He was explaining that to these students. The students, as he explained them, the students are like, yes, yes. There's nothing that can stop us from giving in in that moment. And the pastor said back to him, he said, I know at least one thing that will immediately stop you from giving in to those desires in that moment. And the students are like, no way, they're too strong. And the pastor said, if your father walked through the door, you would immediately stop, right? It's true. And the students, of course, quickly agreed. The pastor went on to say, quite, quote, the presence of a father outweighed the strength of sinful sexual desire. So my words kind of putting to that a benevolent authority destroyed sinful sexual desire in an instant. And the converse, by the way, I want to argue this morning is also true. Benevolent authority inflames and enlivens pure sexual desire. We will see both of those aspects this morning. Big idea is very clear here, very straightforward. God's will. You're wondering what God's will for your life? Here it is. Straightforward in this passage. God's will for your life is sanctified pleasure. God's will for your life is sanctified pleasure. Two points this morning, holiness and sex, right? So if you're new to us, you're going, do y'all talk about this all the time? It's the next passage. We've just been walking right through 1 Thessalonians, and 1 Thessalonians 4 is our passage. And the first point is going to be somewhat controversial to people inside the church, to some inside the church. The second point is going to be very controversial to those outside the church. So we are an equal opportunity offender here. So if we need some more room for, you know, seats, maybe this sermon will do it. We'll see. So buckle up. Here we go. First point, holiness. Let's think about this. That's the guiding principle of this passage. Uh, we'll think more in a minute about this title or about this definition of what holiness is. But just for now, a simple definition of holiness is being set apart and pure. 
set apart from creation and pure, I'm going to argue, in ethics and in aesthetics and in beauty. So that's just a simple one as we go through this. I'll come back to that a little later. But you can see Paul's emphasis on holiness there in verse 3 where he says, God's will for your life is your sanctification. You now know what God's will for your life is. Your sanctification. The word sanctification is the same word we get our word holiness from. So Paul could have easily said, God's will for your life is your holiness. And so God's will for your life in Christ as a Christian and for all people, but obviously he's called people in Christ to be holy, to be set apart, to be pure. And you can see this emphasis on holiness there in verse 4, where the Christian is to control his or her own body in holiness and honor. Verse 7, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Verse 8, we learn that God gives you his Holy Spirit. So God's will, God's desire for your life, all of our lives, our life together is clear and simple. Your sanctification, your holiness, your being increasingly set apart from the world as you conform increasingly to the world to come where God is. Uh, And this sanctification is the process by and by and wherein we grow up in that holiness, right? So justification is the single point in time wherein we are declared by grace through faith in Christ when we believe in the truthfulness of the gospel. That's a point in time. Sanctification, which follows that, is growing up in who we are declared to be in Christ. And so this gospel proclamation is of infinite importance when it comes to the matter of holiness, right? The gospel is this, that God sent his son into the world who is fully, fully God and fully man who uh, did not give in to his sinful sexual desires or any other uh, sinful desires, but instead he was master over those sinful desires, and therefore he is uniquely able to atone for the sins of those that trust him. And so for those that repent and believe on Christ, they then have his record cancer, have their, have their record uh, counted to Jesus, and Jesus' record counted to them, which at that point, because of his resurrection, allows us Christians to be redeemed from the power of sin and brought to the freedom of joy by obeying Christ, which is why we sang that song, their commandments become his happy choice. That's redemption. That's the gospel. We don't do it because we are good at it, but because of Christ boring it in us, and the sanctification is growing up in that holiness. And so Jesus not only saves, but he is saving and is sanctifying in the saving. He not only forgives us for our love of the darkness, but also, just as importantly, he empowers us to walk in the light. And this walking in the light is our sanctification. And so there's some confusion on this, even in Christian circles, and the confusion comes at this point of sanctification. A lot of people claim to have been uh, saved by Christ. They would call themselves Christians. Uh, They maybe have been baptized. Maybe they go to church every now and again, um, whatever the case may be. But friend, you need to know, if that's you, and yet there is no increasing sanctification, then friend, you may not have understood the gospel. If the gospel you claim to believe in stops at your forgiveness and doesn't move on to your progressive sanctification, holiness, then you've not understood the gospel. Christ saves us from our sin and for our holiness, both positional holiness and progressive holiness growing up in that. Justification demands the presence of transformation. Otherwise, you have not experienced salvation. 
Justification, being declared righteous, uh, demands the presence of transformation, regeneration. Otherwise, you have not experienced salvation. Go back to the beginning of this letter and you'll see how this conversion is clearly portrayed. Look again at chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Our gospel came to you, he said, not only in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you what? Became imitators of us and of the Lord. Verse 9, it says, chapter 1 of verse 9, you turn to God from idols. So in other words, what Paul is saying is you not only believe the word of the gospel, but you began to behave differently. Most notably, you began to behave like Christ, who is holy. Paul says here in verse 7, chapter 4, verse 7, for God has not called us. When we're saved, he has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. And so, friends, given the amount of confusion, let me be as clear as I can on this point. Again, if you claim to be a Christian and you are unrepentantly living an impure life, not pursuing sanctification, not pursuing holiness, consciously pursuing sinfulness, then you are probably not a Christian. If there's no desire to grow up into Christ, no repentance, but leaning in, and licentiousness, not just sexual sin, any kinds of sin, then you are likely not a Christian. Jesus says that you will know his disciples by their fruit. And the fruit of your life, if the fruit of your life, lacks interest in and demonstrations of his will of sanctification for your life, then it would seem to indicate that you're not rooted in Christ, but in something else. And and there's numerous people in the New Testament, right, that, Claimed to be in Christ, but weren't. There's a great story of the 19th century English pastor, Charles Spurgeon, who, when walking down a street one day in London, had a drunk man leaning upon a pole, and he called out to Spurgeon. The drunk man leaning against the pole says to Spurgeon, Hey, Mr. Spurgeon, do you remember me? Spurgeon says, No, why should I? And the drunk said, Because I'm one of your converts. And Spurgeon said, Well, you must be one of mine, because you're certainly... Not one of the Lord's. God's will for our life is sanctification, is holiness. That's why he called us. Not only to be declared holy in Christ, but to work that out. He saves us as we are, but he doesn't intend to leave us as we are. God has said, you shall be holy as I am holy. He supplied that positionally in Christ and the power of his Holy Spirit. And again, to be holy means two things. Let's think a little bit more carefully about that definition. To be holy means two things, set apart and pure. I like to put it sometimes transcendently pure. So when God says that he is holy, he is saying that he is set apart, which is to say set apart from creation. So we are created, he is uncreated. We are limited by time, he is outside of time. We change, God never changes. We are limited by knowledge. He has all knowledge. We are limited by power. He has all power. So he, we are, uh, God is, and those that are in Christ are to be set apart from the created order. God is uniquely set apart from the created order, uniquely and positively, which is why, by the way, his name is Yahweh. I am. He always has existed. He's uncreated. And then by pure, I mean two things, both morally pure And beautifully pure. Morally pure meaning in him there is no darkness. No ethical impurities. 
All of his ethical assessments and actions are perfect. Exactly right. He has no deficiencies or needs external to himself that would cause him to think or need to do wrong. Because he is the source of all that is good, right, and true. Therefore, he is, as Paul would say that we ought to be, he therefore is honorable, morally pure. But then, beautifully pure, meaning God is aesthetically perfect in all of his manifestations. So we tend to reduce God's purity merely to ethics, merely to morals. But God in his holiness is not only ethically pure, but he is also delightfully attractive in all that he thinks and does. So in this way, yeah, this is beautiful. God is the perfect painter that paints only the most alluring portraits. God is the most perfect philosopher that deduces the most compelling arguments. God is the perfect landscaper who designs the mountains and the stars and the golden sunsets. God is the perfect designer who designs newborn children who are fearfully and wonderfully made. God is the perfect sociologist that creates relationships and communities that are light and heat. God is the perfect savior that sends his only son into the world to save his enemies through a cross. God is love, which is why God is both pure in his ethics and in his aesthetics. There is no one like him. He is holy, holy. He is set apart from creation and pure. And by his amazing grace, God's will is to so empower us to be the same. That we might not look just like the world, but be set apart from the world in numerous ways. Different appetites and value systems. Different loves and likes. Different ways we spend our time, our money, and our words. And in those differences, we issue moral and aesthetic purities that are timeless and superb in the eyes of God that made us. In other words, in God's will of sanctification, he intends to beautify us into his glorious image. And so it was the Christ of whom that embodies all of this. We see the holiness of God in human form. This illustrates all this. It all comes together in Jesus as everything does. Jesus was so incredibly magnetic because of his holiness. He claimed to be uncreated, right? When he, a man not yet 35, said before Abraham was, I am. And he was pure in all that he did. Intoxicating to both prostitutes and princes, Jews and Gentiles, men and women, the religious elite and the religiously indifferent. Never once affirming any sin. And all the while teaching, praying, and ministering to them in all of the ways of the kingdom of heaven while still there on the earth. Never doing wrong. Perfect, therefore, in his sacrifice. His miracles not only pictured his divinity, they pictured the kingdom that he preached and was ushering in as its king. No sickness, no death, no sin, no confusion, but truth in a world of love to all those that believe. That's what he was bringing about. He used his power not to get something from people, but to get something into people. Stooping to the point of man and dying even on a horrendous death, death on a cross. He used his authority to make prostitutes feel safe and tax collectors feel forgiven. He used his knowledge of the Bible to instruct to all that would listen. He built his kingdom on the backs of 12 otherwise forgettable men that had no impressive attributes and were full of doubt. He was magnetic. And unequivocally, he changed the world. You cannot deny that. And it was because of his holiness. His holiness was not sort of an incidental part of his beauty. It was core to it. His holiness was what animated 
all of these beautiful things. And this is his will for us in Christ, that we be holy as he is holy, that we participate in the holy life of Christ both now and forevermore. That we be set apart as morally and aesthetically pure people as he gives us his Holy Spirit. For he calls us not to impurity, but holiness. Irenaeus said so many centuries ago, one of the early church fathers, said that the glory of God is man fully alive. And so, friends, the stigma of a holy life in Christ, as dry and dull and boring and sad and sullen, as never experiencing any joy and only being mad at the world, friends, that is a tool of the devil. If you believe that, you are playing into his games. Never before or since has been one more alive than Christ himself, nor full of beauty, nor full of joy than Jesus And never before or since is anyone more alive than those that are giving themselves to the work of the Holy Spirit to be holy as he is holy. That is what it means to be holy, to be fully alive in his holiness. And so, church, give yourself to the work of the Spirit more and more that you might know what it really is to live, to believe, and to have life. And, friends, if you disregard this call of holiness, you disregard not my words, but God, as Paul says, who offers his Holy Spirit to us to make us holy. And so it is with that that we turn to Paul's application of holiness of sex. Talked about holiness. Paul moves to apply this aspect of holiness to sex. And you'll notice Paul leans into his authority in this passage. Y'all see that? Verse 1, we ask and urge you, not in himself, in the Lord Jesus. Verse 2, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Verse 3, for this is the will of God. Verse 6, we told you and solemnly warned you. Verse 8, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God. As we talked about back in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul is conscious of his counsel that he is offering words straight from the mouth of God himself. So if anybody ever says to you that the Bible is written by men just sort of coming up with stuff they think about God, they didn't actually know the truth, they didn't know that they were writing Scripture, that is clearly not true. We see this straight from the mouth of Paul, that he knows he is speaking on behalf of God as his ambassador. So this is not man's best guesses about God's words. This is God's word to man. And what's his counsel? What is sanctification? That's our God's will for life. What's sanctification look like? Verse 3. That you abstain from sexual immorality. Let each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother. You can translate that brother or sister. In this matter because the Lord is the event, is avenger in all these things. Sexual immorality is any sexual activity in thought or in deed that colors outside the lines of God's design of the one flesh union within the marital covenant between a man and a woman. Say that again. Sexual immorality is any sexual activity in thought or in deed that colors outside the lines of God's design of the one flesh union inside the marital covenant between a man and a woman. By the way, and I'll mention this in a moment, you can sin inside the marital covenant as well, in treating the other one like a tool. Nevertheless, that's what sexual immorality is. And last week, I want you to see, do you you notice in the passage how Paul talks about the fact that they had been sharing this, that they talked about this? 
right? He says there, uh, in all these things, as we told you, verse 6, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Now, last week, you remember, we talked about the fact that Paul told them time and again. They're only with them for like three or four weeks. And he says, we told you, we told you that you're going to suffer, that suffering is normal. And now we learn also, apparently, he's also including to them the counsel that we told you over and over again, that sexual immorality is not okay. So Paul, friends, did not shy away from the hard topics in his kind of introduction to Christianity class, nor should we. He put them right up front and center. And so, friend, if you're not a Christian and you're thinking about the Christian faith, you've kind of wandered in here. I'm so glad that you're here, and I hope that you'll be encouraged to keep coming back as we promise to teach you all that Jesus commanded. Not just the stuff that we think you'll like, so you'll come on our team. Especially the things you want to bring to bear, the things we think you might not like. Jesus said to count the cost. And so, friend, we promise to not give you a popcorn, a slushy, an American Jesus. We want to give you the real one, right? The real one. See what he says. That's why we walk through books of the Bible. I didn't design this sermon text. It just is the next one. So we want to give you all that Jesus says. We're submitting our life to him because we believe that he's good and holy. And most people are not going to like this passage in our context. Because it calls us into sanctified sex, not licentious sex. It's curious, isn't it, that the first thing that Paul talks about after he talks about God's will of sanctification, of holiness, it's curious that the first thing he brings up is sex. Right out of the gate. Now, I think he does that for four reasons. First, Paul uh, was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He knew his Bible backwards and forward. He probably would have been able to to speak the Pentateuch from memory, the entire Pentateuch. So he knew his Bible, and he knew all of those stories from the Old Testament. And there's so many that God intentionally sticks in the Bible to help us see just the destructiveness of sexual immorality. So that's probably the one reason why he brings this up so quickly. Another reason why he brings this up quickly, sexual immorality, is because the context of which he was operating when, Greco-Roman culture from antiquity, was very similar to our own. It was a very hyper-sexualized culture. But a third reason he probably brings this up so quickly is because he knew that sexual temptation was strong. And then fourthly, he probably brings this up because he knew sexual temptation is deep and bad. So writing to a very similar context to the church in Corinth that he planted, he says this in 1 Corinthians 6, 18 to 20. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Christians are not Platonists, right? Platonists. We we believe that the body is important. That's why the Christian can uniquely stand over uh, a body at a funeral, the Christian funeral, and know God's not done with that body. It's a very unique claim. So we have here another example even of Paul talking about sexual sin from Romans chapter 1. And there in Romans chapter 1, he gives an example of the depth of sexual sin. Uh, He uses the practice and approval, practice and approval in Romans 1. He uses the practice and approval of homosexual behavior as an illustration of God's wrath on a people. 
He says in Romans 1, 24 to 27, there, there he describes the practice and approval of homosexual behavior as God giving these people up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. In other words, what Paul is saying there is illustrations of a people of people under judgment is God just giving themselves over to their appetites. Sex becomes God, and that's an illustration of God's judgment. He knows the power, Paul does, the pull and the destructiveness of sexual immorality more than we all probably do. He knows that of all the things that can move them from the gospel, remember we talked about that last week, Of all the things that can move them from the gospel, sexual morality is at the top of the list. And so the question is, guys, do we? Do we? Do we know the power, the pull, the darkness, and the destructiveness of all forms of sexual immorality and the way that it pushes against sanctification, God's will for our lives? Friends, the fact is we live in a hyper-sexualized world. We've been so numbed to sexual immorality, we'd be fools to not think that our sense of what is right and wrong hasn't been affected in some way. From soap to cars to car shops and everything in between, advertisements prey upon the fact that sex sells. Blunting our consciences to the degree that it becomes easy to just approve what everybody else approves. To continue to be discipled by the world and just go along with it. And say that it's right or good or fine. Friends, it's almost impossible to find TV shows or movies that don't include sexual immorality. Because they know it will keep people coming back. I've told you that story numerous times of watching a movie that I really enjoyed. And I got to the end of it. I said, that was a great movie. The guy got the girl. And I got to the end of the movie and I totally didn't even realize. 30 minutes later, I started thinking about the narrative of the movie. The guy left his wife to go after another woman and have sex with her. That was in the story, and it didn't even hit me. And I'm a pastor preaching about this stuff, right? How much are we being affected? They just put it in movies and songs and the like, and we don't even know it. This kind of uh, romanticizing of sexual immorality, what it does is it actually allures us to thinking that we can treat people like objects to be enjoyed for our personal use and just dismiss them whenever we're not in love with them anymore or whatever the case may be. Relishing, it seems, in the dishonorable use of our bodies instead of holding up honorable images of chastity and restraint. Sexual immorality has even begun, we've seen this numerous times now, it's even begun to to invade children's TV shows and cartoons. Discipling them to think this is fine, this is good. I mentioned that one movie. Andy and I started watching another. We saw some advertisements of, of a show, and we thought it would be good. looked interesting to us. didn't seem to have any alluring sexual appetites to it. And, and so we turned on the show, and halfway through the first episode, we were just shocked and just had to turn it off. The porn industry is slowly killing people to the tune of some $100 billion of annual revenue, revenue a year. That's B as in boy, $100 billion of annual revenue a year, the porn industry, which includes one site boasting some 115 million users a day. 
Literally, guys, literally, scientists will tell you, non-Christian scientists will tell you that this porn use, continued porn use, literally rewires people's brains and in the process creates expectations in relationships that diminish the hope of satisfaction, honor, and respectability in marriage when it comes to sex. The sexual revolution has bolstered the abortion industry, which now includes somewhere north of 600,000 abortions a year. 600,000, those are children, which rakes in, by the way, millions of dollars a year for those seeking to profit from that illicit behavior, calling it reproductive care. And the sex trade industry, you heard Chris pray for that, it traffics some 6 million people, oftentimes women, some of which are supported by individual use of pornography. You look at pornography, you're supporting the sex trade industry. Sexually transmitted diseases continue to rise each year, where now we have in our country one in five people having had an STD. One in five. Retail outlets and even school systems have now seen to profit, seen the profit that's in this, and they've participated in it themselves. And we ask a simple question. I could go on. I could ask a simple question. Are we the better for all of this? Are we the better? Are women and children safer? Are marriages and families stronger? Is the so-called sexual freedom that we now celebrate, has it produced a society that has more joy and more confidence and more mental stability and more virtuous and satisfied people? Or has it created more of the opposite? And it's true, somebody might say, well, Nathan, there's some people starting to push back against this. That's true. I think we are starting to see some points of light. People, just the general populace pushing back. They're starting to see that unhindered access and unhindered uh, sexual identities are, in fact, not actually helping us. They're hurting us. People are starting to see that. But it's still going to be hard to roll back, guys, for one main reason. Well, two reasons, most notably, our sinful hearts. That's the biggest one. That's the engine, remember. But secondly, the tool of the engine is that little thing we carry around in our pockets everywhere that's got a computer on it, making it hard to not push it away. Paul calls sexual immorality in Revelation 2 the deep things of Satan. Look down there again at verses 4 and 5 and consider what Paul is saying about those who participate in sexual immorality. Look at the, look at the verse, verse 4 and 5. Look at, here he's addressing about people that participate in this. He says that by doing so, quote, you are unable to control your own body. That the passions of your flesh rule you. Sort of like Romans 1, you don't rule you, you think you rule you. That's what Satan would have you to believe. But in fact, your sexuality is actually your God. It's ruling you. You're a slave to it. And these acts are related to, Paul says that these acts of sexual immorality are just like people, like the Gentiles, that don't know God. And then look at verse 6. This is really important to see. Not only is sexual immorality an affront or a sin to God, it is also a sin against those of whom you participate in it with. Ever thought about that? That's right there in Scripture, verse 6. It's a sin against those of whom you participated. And again, that would include, by the way, individual pornography use when you think you're alone. You're actually harming those of whom you look at. And Paul makes it clear. It's a heavy word. He intends to be heavy. 
God will avenge the desecration of what he made very good. God will punish these acts of sexual immorality. And so in the words of Paul there in verse 6, I solemnly warn you of these things now. I solemnly warn you of these things now. I'll turn in just a moment to the beautiful picture of God's design for sex. But for now, friend, God wants you to see that what may feel good, what may feel right, what may others may sort of say is a virtue, it's literally destroying you. And it's harming other people in the process. Premarital sex takes the form of marriage without the commitment. Thus rendering the relationship as a largely selfish affair since it's not prepared to reach the marriage level and become one flesh in that marital covenant. And sexual immorality committed even against a spouse when done in a sinful manner serves to contaminate the body that God made to be a temple of the Holy Spirit. Tim Keller says it well. Quote, modern culture's sexual logic is that sex is for self-fulfillment and self-realization. This ultimately depersonalizes and objectifies people because it ultimately turns sex into a consumer good rather than a means to nurture a bond of covenant. It leads to fractured community and the decline of marriage and the family. Sex outside of marriage is ultimately transactional, and so it cannot be finally intimate. So friends, be solemnly warned of such sexual immorality both in your participation of it and your approval of it. Know that God will avenge it, either at the cross or at his return. And I want you to know, your pastor is a sexual sinner. But I've repented of that sin by God's grace and placed my faith in Christ that's taken away. My guess is probably that's most people in the room. Thanks be to God that there's more grace in him than there is sin in us. And there's grace for you, friend, if you would but turn and trust him, be forgiven, and walk in the power of the gospel. So let's take a moment to think about this. What does sexual morality look like, and why is it like that most notably? Because if you're here this morning and you're wondering, why do you Christians think like this ultimately? Yeah, you quote a Bible verse, but why is it like that? It's one of the things we try to do at our church. It's not just tell you what the Bible says, but why it says it. So why is it? Why is sexual immorality? Why is sexual intimacy outside of the covenant of that one flesh covenant of merit between a husband and a wife? Why does God say that's sexually immoral? Why does God mean to avenge it? Simple answer. Because God and the Trinity is one in essence, one in kind, three in persons. And in his heterogeneity, Father, Son, and Spirit, he has been thoroughly committed to, we might say, in a manner of speaking, a monogamous relationship to love one another forever. Therefore, he creates mankind to so image that. And in particular, he creates marriage, right, to picture Christ's relationship to his bride, his wife, the church. One holy, formative, monogamous relationship. Therefore, when he creates us in his image, he creates sex to be outfitted to reflect the same things that are true about himself and his relationship to his people. He designs sex to be holy, which means he designs it to be fully alive, glorious, and good. We've got a fantastic, if you're wondering, Christians are against sex. No, we are very much for it. Matter of fact, I think the more that we understand it, the better it becomes. And so 
We believe what we believe. Christians see what we see because God, who he is, and then who he has made the church to be, how he's made sex to be imaged in Christ, which includes four things, four things about how it's beautifully right and reflects God and Christ's relationship to the first. First, it's heterosexual. It's man to woman. They literally, Paul, remember that God made the body, so the bodies literally fit together. Heterosexual monogamous, right? That's why God has a one flesh union. Genesis 2, Jesus quotes this in Matthew 19, a one flesh union between two people that can biologically fit together. And he made it that way, guys, biologically, that one flesh union. He didn't make it where it's a two or three or four flesh union. It's one flesh union as the two become one. Heterosexual, monogamous, third, other-oriented. Other-oriented. It's not selfish. It's not selfish. Sex, when it's done best, is more interested in the other, and the other's more interested in you, not you getting yours. Which is what the Trinity's doing. Which is what the Gospel's doing. And then fourthly, covenantal. Heterosexual, monogamous, other-oriented, covenantal. That is, unconditionally committed in a loving marriage. Just as God is committed to Himself, just as Christ is committed to the church. Not a bunch of other gods, not a bunch of other people, as it were. One flesh union. So the biology, guys, reveals the who and the how of sex. And in this, we see the beauty of sex, right? That's, that's how God is in himself. That's how Christ relates to the church. Therefore, to reject any of those four things I just mentioned. Even if you say, I'm good for three of those, but not for the fourth. To reject any of those four is to reject God's design and cultivate impurity, which will explain some of the difficulty and sadness that you might experience. To reject any one of these, you cultivate impurity in your relationship to God and also the person of whom you're engaged with it. And you also cultivate impurity in yourself. So God, the person you're engaged with it and yourself. And so if anyone ever asks you why sex is designed for a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage alone, just tell them this because it reflects God and it reflects his relationship to the church. That's it. The fact is, guys, studies even back this up. We don't need them to, right? To be clear, we don't need them to, but studies will actually back up this understanding of sexual satisfaction. According to one study done in 2019 among 10,000 people of all different types and backgrounds, far and away, do you know who the most sexually satisfied people were? Highly religious married couples that had traditional understandings of gender. Their words, not mine. The most sexually satisfied people were highly religious married couples that had traditional understandings of, of gender. And guess who was the uh, found to be the lowest sexually satisfied group? Of that 10,000. I'm just going to quote their words. Progressive secular couples. The most sexually unsatisfied people. The exact opposite of what we're led to believe. How many times have you seen beautiful sexual. Well let's hope not anywhere. Right. That was a bad example. But the point is made, right? We normally are being shown images of things that are outside of the, everything the opposite. And might that lead us to believe that we war not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the principalities of this world. It makes sense if Scripture is true. 
Because it fits inside of the contours of God's design. Man and woman able to be one flesh biologically, spiritually, emotionally in a committed one-to-one covenant that is built not on using the other person but like Christ serving the joy of the other person creates an understanding of sex that is wonderfully life-giving because it's celebrating the exclusive communion they have with one another. You've heard me use this example before. Like in the church, we have two ordinances, right? Baptism, a one-time incidence in the life of the Christian. And then communion or the Lord's Supper, which is an ongoing sign of our communion with Christ. So it is in marriage. You get married, Lord willing, one time. That's God's design. And then what do you do to renew the covenant? That's what you do to renew the covenant. And the more that you get inside of that oneness, the same thing in your relationship with Christ. The more that you love Jesus and give your life to Jesus... Right? The more satisfaction you have in him. So it is in the marriage. The more, the longer you go, the more you're married, the more you give yourself to Christ and to one another. Not trying to use the other person, but to love the other person. What you're going to find is the sex is going to get better. Even when your bodies don't. Right? Right? If it's true, if the world's definition of what sexual satisfaction is true, then we would need really, like, everybody has to look amazing and everything has to be, you know, just the stuff all the time. And so as they age, it would seem to get worse if they're right. But actually, if the gospel is right, it would get better. And that's exactly what we find in Scripture. That's what we find in experience. That's what we find in the world as they study it. Therefore, we might call this view of sex sanctified pleasure. God is after our joy. Because God is holy. God is committed to our joy. We see that he's committed to our joy in the gospel. And because he's committed his will for our lives is holiness. Therefore, do not indulge the passions of the flesh and disrupt your joy by committing sexually immoral thoughts or actions. Instead, give yourself to God's design as he allows for your ability to be married. And I'd hasten to speak to my single friends. The goal of life is not marriage and sex. That is not the goal. Christ is the goal. Which is why sex is just picturing the joy of the goal. Right? Joey said this before. I cannot improve upon it. It's so good. Right? Marriage pictures the shape of the gospel. Singleness pictures the sufficiency of the gospel. So the point is not get married and have sex. That is not the goal of life. Jesus wasn't married. Paul wasn't married. Right? The point is Christ. He's our joy. So how can we pursue God's will of sanctified pleasure when it comes to lives, to our sexual lives? Five things, five ways we can cultivate holiness as it relates to sexual intimacy. These will be brief. Five ways to pursue God's will of sanctification for your life as he empowers us by the Holy Spirit through the work of Christ. Five ways. Here's the first. Put off sexually immoral habits. Put off sexual immoral habits. That includes the times, like the hours of the day. I've walked with enough people to know that this is the case. Oftentimes, just pay attention. When are you normally looking at that thing? Pay attention to what times you look at on the phone. Put that off. Don't go look at it that long. Put off the apps on your phone. The access that you have to your phone. Or get rid of that stinking phone for the love of God in Christ Jesus. Get rid of it. It is not any kind of right to have that thing grow as an appendage. Get rid of it. You say, well, Nathan, I need it for my job. There are other ways. We can talk about that. 
This includes putting off cable or movie packages that are going to entice you. Uh, could put off uh, going to certain places uh, or certain people maybe that are going to tempt you. It could be um, as it's been, yeah, so uh, put off reading erotic novels. Get rid of those. Jesus says in reference to lust in Matthew 5, 29, quote, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. In other words, what Jesus is saying, he's not speaking literally there. He's just saying, be very aggressive to get rid of it. Whatever tempts you to move from the gospel and God's will to sanctify you, cut it off. Do whatever is necessary to remove its tentacles from your life. If you keep your phone, get covenant eyes, right? Get somebody, and there's other apps that can actually track that or uh, have you to not have get access to those things. Have someone regularly check your browsing and financial history. My wife checks my browsing history. Thanks be to God, in 20 years, she's never found anything. But nevertheless, I know she has full rights to that thing. Full, check that browsing history and financial history. But you need to know, guys, that's just the beginning. Scripture makes clear that by putting off these kinds of things won't in and of itself make you holy. A non-Christian can do those things. So that leads to the second thing. Put off, first, put off sexually immoral habits. Secondly, put on going to Christ in prayer. Put on going to Christ in prayer. See, Jesus invites us, guys. He invites us when he says to sinners, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My guess is some of you are heavy laden in some of your sexual past. Good news. You have a Savior that says, come. I'll take care of it. I'll lift it. I'll lift the burden. Bring it to me. See, the evil one would lead you to believe that's the last place you should go. But what Jesus says, no, that's the best place because he knows what to do with your sin. And he's done something with it. And he'll empower you in a good way. Don't let anybody tell you that the last place to go is Jesus. That's the best place to go. Three things to do when you pray. Repent, receive, and request. First, repent of the sin that you've committed. Be specific as you can. Don't try to hide it. It's not like the Lord doesn't know anyway, right? Just as the prodigal confessed his sin to the Father, so confess your sin to your Savior. He already knows. He's already dealt with it at the cross. Be joyfully glad to go to him and confess that. Repent of it. Turn from it. Confess it to him. Turn around from it, which will lead to the second thing. Receive. Receive the promises of the gospel. Repent of the sin, receive the promises of the gospel. I love this. After Paul tells the sexually immoral that they don't inherit the kingdom of God, Paul then says in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. You were washed, it's done. So much power. You don't have to live in the guilt and the shame. That's Satan trying to tempt you to do that. That is not true. And the power of the gospel, it is taken care of. I love a pastor years ago said something. Anytime the uh, Satan or the evil one or somebody wants to remind me of my past and say, let's think about the past. Let's go back to history. Let's go back 2,000 years and see where it was dealt with. You want to look at that? We get washed in Christ. Clean. No more guilt. No more shame. Go to him. Request the promises of the gospel i should say receive the promises of the gospel john writes in first john 1 9 if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us not just forgive them but cleanse us 
from not some unrighteousness. Oh, Jesus, maybe not that one. That one was really bad. No, all unrighteousness. Go to Jesus. Repent of what you've done. Receive the promises of the gospel. Be washed clean by the spotless blood of the Lamb. And then thirdly, request gospel power. Repent, receive, request gospel power. Romans 6 is so good here. He says in verse 6 to 7, Paul writing, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order, why? In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Here's the end. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For no one, for one who has died has been set free from sin. This is the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian when it comes to all sin, but in particular sexual sin. We don't just give in to our appetites. We don't just do whatever we think we want to do. But instead, we're born again by the power of the Spirit. We're empowered to no longer be enslaved to ourselves, no longer be enslaved to sex, no longer be enslaved to whatever everybody else is saying. And we can now be enslaved to Jesus, our great reward, who's leading us in the delightful way. Request gospel power. Or look at Paul here in our passage, 1 Thessalonians 4, 8. God gives his Holy Spirit to you. Yes, you and me. He gives it to you. And so go to Christ in prayer. Repent of sin. Receive gospel promises. Request gospel power. Uh, So we've said put off sexual immorality. Put on prayer by going to Christ. Third, put on Christ by showing up to the body of Christ. The church. Put on Christ. This is how you grow in holiness. And sexual sin. Put on Christ by showing up with the body of Christ. One of the evil one's best laid plans is to isolate you. The more alone you are, the easier it is to get him to have you to be tempted to not be sanctified. He knows God's design for the church is to keep you in the light. I mean, this this gathering, once every seven days, right? He knows, he hates this gathering because you're going to hear this. And so just show up with the people of Christ. Just show up. It's like the easiest application in the world. Just show up. Right? If you show up regularly, well, think about this, by the way. I heard another guy say this. I was not a great student. Right? Some of you are like, oh, that explains a lot. But I was not a good student in school. Right? And one of the things that if you just showed up, you'd get a passing grade. Right? Just show up. Show up. Show up to this gathering. Show up to the prayer gatherings. We'll have one tonight, five o'clock. Right? Show up to community groups. Show up to individual discipling relationships. You're going to realize more of the power of the gospel the more that these little hot coals of the gospel come together and create more heat. And this is a good time to announce, guys, if you haven't heard this, this is an invitation to all men, don't have to be a member here, on December the 9th, right here, December the 9th, that morning, we will have breakfast at 7.30. After that, will be followed by a program where we're going to have a couple guys from our own church give some testimonies to their victory in this area of life by the power of God and the gospel. They'll give a couple uh, testimonies. After that, we'll have a brother named Joe Smith, who's from the TCT Network, is going to come down from Minneapolis. He does this in a lot of churches, and he's going to give like a 20-minute presentation to talk about the power of the gospel in sexual immorality. And then there's going to be a time for people just to confess their sin to the elders of the church, where we can pray with each other, which will then lead to, for those that are interested, a few meetings afterwards to get on in that work. December the 9th, 7.30 to about 9.30. I hope you'll come. More on that later. Okay. Fourth, put on a vision of honor. Put on a vision of honor. Look again at the text, verse 4. Each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. To think of your sexual appetites the same way that you think of your appetite for food and water is to think of your body like an animal that just operates in its basic instincts. 
We're not animals, right? We don't just operate out of instinct, right? God implanted the image of God within us. He made us in his image. And therefore, uh, what we find here is we should have this image of honor out in front of us. Get a vision of what is honorable, what an honorable man or woman is. Find a mentor. Get a historical hero. Look at a model in the life of the church. Get it clear in your head so that you learn right, to imitate them as they imitate Christ. Like look at somebody and just say, I want to be like that. They're not perfect, whoever that person is, but they imitate them insofar as they imitate Christ. They're like a visual demonstration of someone of honor. They say, I want to learn to to be like that. You guys know uh, my historical hero is Wilberforce. And I love to read about, I love to read William Wilberforce's biography, not to learn about all that he accomplished. Those are not my favorite biographies. Although those are fantastic. It's fun to think about that. The reason why I like to listen to him uh, and read about him is because I want to know what he's like. Because he was such an amazing man. He was such an honorable man. So I read those to inspire to be a man, an honorable man as he is. Get a vision of honor. I think about my mom, my dad, my grandparents. These people were mountains of honor. Use your body for honorable purposes, purposes, not dishonorable purposes. Put on a vision of honor. Fifth and finally. Put on the pleasure of God. Maybe you didn't expect to hear that, but take a look at verse 1. This is the first thing Paul says. He says how he looks there. Look at, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to what? Please God. Find pleasure in God. Guys, everybody on planet Earth is motivated by joy in something. And what you find joy in is what you'll become. So find joy in joy's fountain. Find it in God, the author of love and the author of joy. This is what holiness is all about. Increasingly, more and more, finding pleasure in God for God. That's what holiness is. That's what we're, that's what the church, what are we doing as a church? That's what we're doing. Collectively, bring the coals in the fire together that we might increasingly be holy as we find more joy in God, more pleasure in God. The goal of sex and marriage, as I said, is not sex and marriage. It's God and Christ. And the more that we find pleasure in him, the more of sanctified pleasure we will receive. Sex is just an illustration of that, as are other things. But he's the goal, not marriage, not family, not kids, not sex. The more of his beauty that we see, the more of his love that we see, the more that we want to give ourselves to delighting in him. And the more and the more we do that, the more sanctified we become, the more sanctified we become, the more we will experience the life of Christ that we were given when we first believed. This is God's will for our life. Sanctified pleasure. Do this. Pursue this work to find sanctified pleasure. He has saved us to transform us into those that find our joy in him as we also reflect that as an application in our sexual lives. And thanks be to God that Jesus has saved us from our sins, is saving us, and will bring us home when we will see him face to face and we will be glad that we gave our all to him. So let's pray to him now.